Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to this week's Core Concepts, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from Carolina's Medical Center Emergency Medicine Group. Today we have Dr. Covell, Dr. Tragonis, and I'm Chrissy Zahner, here to talk about acute urinary retention. This week's installment is sponsored by your college roommate. Your college roommate, because only someone who likes you that much would stick your hand in a cup of warm water. Your college roommate. Now let's get on with the show. Today we're going to be talking about kind of the opposite of what your college roommate was trying to do to you, and that's going to be acute urinary retention. And for that, we brought in our very own Dr. Covell to give us a little bit more information about this. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ben. Happy to be here. We've heard you're a little bit of an expert in this subject. Yeah, unfortunately. This is near and dear to my heart. Please explain. Well, I had a splenectomy last year, and uh, after the surgery, couldn't pee. It's beautiful, really. The miracles of modern medicine. I love it. So what can you tell us about acute urinary retention? What's our epidemiology of this process we're looking at here? So it's something everybody's probably going to see at some point in their emergency medicine career. Uh, it's actually the most common urologic emergency that we see in the department. It occurs most frequently in men, typically older men, greater than 60 years old. Over a five-year period, you can expect about 10% of men over the age of 70 to experience acute urinary retention and about one-third of men over the age of 80. Don't see it as often in women, uh, about 1 to 13 ratio of women to men. How does this happen? So there's three basic mechanisms that contribute to urinary retention, uh, the most important of which being outflow obstruction, but also neurologic impairment and bladder overdistension. So these different mechanisms, do they happen to both men and women, or are there certain ones that are more common in men and certain ones that are more common in women? Yeah, so there's definitely going to be some variability between men and women. Uh, primarily when you think about urinary retention, like we talked about earlier, we're going to think of men. So, you know, typically in men, the, probably the majority of what we're going to see is from BPH. Other things more common in men are uh, urethral strictures because we have a longer urethra, phimosis, paraphimosis, our urogenital cancers, trauma. Things that we may see more commonly in women are things like pelvic organ prolapse, cystoceles, rectoceles, pelvic masses from... Uh, gynecologic tumors, and then things that we're going to see just across the board, both in men and women, constipation, infections, so UTI, pyelonephritis, side effects from medications, specifically sympathomimetics causing outflow obstruction, pain, just alpha-adrenergic activity from pain can contribute to this. The hematuria itself, the increased viscosity from blood in your urine itself can cause urinary retention, and then urolithiasis. What about with neurological impairment? It's a very complex uh, neurologic pathway going both from the bladder to the brain and from the brain back to the bladder. And really any interruption along that pathway can cause issues. Oftentimes we're going to see this in trauma, so our spinal cord injury patients, but also other things like epidural abscess, metastases within the spine, infarction, demyelination, neurologic conditions such as Guillain-Barre syndrome, multiple sclerosis, spina bifida, Parkinson's. Probably increasing in our population is urinary retention related to diabetic neuropathy, and sometimes you can see this in strokes too. Okay, so we have the outflow obstruction causes, we have the neurologic impairment causes. What about bladder overdistension? That's something I'm not as comfortable with. Yeah, this is the one that's near and dear to my heart, unfortunately. But with bladder overdistension, you can see this following epidural or general anesthesia, typically in younger, healthy patients like myself. 
You can also see this in medication side effects, so with anticholinergics, uh, decreasing the contraction of the trisor muscle. Uh, you may also see this with fluid overload, so if you're really aggressive with your IV therapy and there may not be somebody around to help people relieve their bladder, you can get some bladder over distension that can contribute to urinary retention. When I think of urinary retention, I think of the older gentleman in large prostate coming in telling me he hasn't been able to pee. What else should we be looking for when people come into the emergency department with urinary retention? If this is true acute urinary retention, they're probably not going to be very happy. They're probably going to be restless. They're going to look like they're in a lot of pain, complaining of a lot of lower abdominal or suprapubic discomfort. Um, I can tell you from personal experience, this is probably the most painful thing that I've ever been through. Uh, they've actually done some studies that looked at pain scales for people with acute urinary retention, and they're almost comparable to, to pain related to renal colic, if you, if you want to think of it that way. Other things to, to look for, though, is people that have chronic urinary retention, they may not have pain. These are often painless presentations. And typically we're thinking, oh, urinary retention, these are people that aren't producing urine, but sometimes people that have acute on chronic urinary retention, they may actually present as overflow incontinence. Okay, so I've got a guy who's rolling around on the bed right now. It seems like urinary retention is high on my differential. How do you go about evaluating these patients? So like many things in medicine, it comes back to a good history and a good physical exam. Particularly related to the history, you don't want to forget your medication history, so asking about over-the-counter medications, antihistamines that can have anticholinergic properties. Another thing you want to ask about is bowel habits because constipation can contribute to this. Really important to know if this has happened before or if they've had any previous urologic surgeries. Wait, don't tell me I had to pay attention during toxicology. You do. <laughs> well said, Dr. Covell. Well said. What about the physical exam? You know, obviously you want to get a good look at the GU system. Um, in a female, that usually results in a, a full pelvic exam. The probably most important thing for this discussion is to do a complete neurologic exam on all these patients, including a digital rectal exam. Make sure to focus on things like reflexes in your lower extremities. Make sure that this isn't a primary neurologic process that is contributing to the urinary retention. Digital rectal exam, got it. Wait, what are we talking about again? <laughs> Sorry, so to be more serious here, so when we're trying to actually diagnose this, can you diagnose it from the physical exam alone, or are there other studies you might use to get your final diagnosis? So a lot of this is going to be a clinical diagnosis, but we can actually use our tools with ultrasound to, to kind of help point us in the right direction. At this point, with our vast training in, in ultrasound, we should probably be expected to get an ultrasound probe on these people relatively quickly. If you do throw the probe on them and, and take a look at their bladder, Anything over 300 cc's is pretty suggestive of acute urinary retention. All right, found urinary retention. Got it. Just stick a Foley in it, right? Well, that's pretty much it. You know, there's, there's some circumstances where you're not going to be able to put a Foley in. You know, we'll kind of go through each of those things. But, you know, if they have an obvious previous urologic history or some sort of stricture that's going to prevent you from doing that, you may have to use other modalities. But really the key in acute urinary retention is to decompress the bladder. So whatever you have to do to make that happen. So when I'm decompressing the bladder, am I just plugging in a Foley, putting the other end in the sink and just seeing what pours out, or do I have to really worry about measuring how much urine output we get? The problem we get into is, you know, we put these Foley's in, we walk away, we don't get back to the patient for an hour or so, we check the Foley bag and say it has 700 cc's, but we really don't know how much came out when we initially placed it or how much has just been trickling in as we're pounding them with IV fluid really important after about 10 to 15 minutes to go back and look at how much has been drained from the Foley. If it's anywhere less than 200 cc's, you could probably pull it out and trial voiding. If it's greater than 400 cc's, you probably need to leave it in. 
That's probably not going to be somebody that's going to have a successful void. And anywhere between two and 400 is kind of up to your clinical judgment. What if I'm having issues with getting the Foley in place? Yeah, so we actually spoke with some of our urology colleagues here, and they gave us some tips. So when, when entering, when, when first placing the Foley, we're, we're speaking about males here, you want to hold the penis upright and make sure that it's kind of perpendicular with the body when you're first entering. And as you're passing the Foley, you can stretch it down towards the feet to help straighten up your anatomy. Sometimes you're going to reach resistance at the membranous urethra, uh, you can ask the patient to take some deep breaths or actually attempt to void, and that may help you out a little bit in terms of relaxing things to, to get the Foley passed. They do recommend some gentle pressure. You may meet some resistance. You don't want to slam it in there, but if you just apply, apply gentle pressure and rotate it in your fingers for about 30 to 60 seconds, you can usually push through. Okay, so sometimes it just takes a little bit of extra gentle pressure while you're doing this with males. And the positioning was really good to know as well. Now, how do you handle it with females? In females, you want to maximize your success rate by getting them in the right position. So you want them in the supine lithotomy position, especially if they're obese, Trendelenburg may help kind of use gravity to help line up the anatomy for you, get rid of any redundant tissue. Uh, if you do accidentally place it in the vagina, which is not uncommon, just leave it in place. You can use that as a landmark when you're looking for the urethra on attempt number two. Sometimes they recommend using a portable light source or using multiple assistants uh, or actually a speculum to help retract the labia when you're entering to increase your likelihood of success. Okay, so we've tried to maximize our anatomy to give us the best chance of placing the Foley. What if we're still not having any success? Now, I know there's something fancy called a coup de catheter. I have no idea what it is or what it looks like. So you think you could walk me through that, Ben? Yeah, so a coup de catheter has a, an angulated, slightly more firm, rigid tip compared to our normal straight tip catheters that we're using on these patients. The, the urology team here recommends starting with an 18 French, like if all else fails, just go to an 18 French catheter and do the, you know, go through the previous steps that we talked about, and 90% of the time you're going to have success. And do make sure that when you're putting the coude in, that it's pointing anteriorly to really help line up the anatomy. So what if we've tried everything? We've optimized our positioning, we've used our assistance, but when we go to put the catheter in, we're just not quite sure what we're looking at, usually due to a recent neurological surgery where anatomy is deformed. So this is where the suprapubic catheter comes in place. So this can be used on anybody that's had recent urologic surgery, um, sometimes in patients with acute prostatitis, anybody with significant urethral stricture that's just going to prevent you from pushing through or any other major anatomic abnormality. Am I doing this or is the urologist coming down? Yeah, so this is typically going to be placed by a urologist. However, in the emergency department, say you're in a more rural area where urology won't be available for five or six hours, there is something we can do to temporize that and that's needle aspiration. Okay, uh, walk us through a needle aspiration. Typically, you're going to grab a syringe with like a 20-gauge IV catheter. We're going to use an ultrasound. Uh, you're savvy with it. You know, this isn't something we do all the time. We want to make sure that we're going in the right spot. So you're going to find the pubic symphysis. You're going to go two finger breaths above that. You're going to use your ultrasound, see if you can identify the bladder. You want to make sure that the patient's in Trendelenburg, making sure the bowel is displaced because the worst thing that could happen is to puncture the bowel while you're doing that. And then gently go in while you're aspirating until you get urine. Are there any contraindications to when I shouldn't be doing this? Patients that have bladder cancer, probably not the best idea. Anybody that has a significant infection, like an abdominal wall abscess, also probably not a good idea. Patients that have had any sort of vascular grafting in that area, specifically like a fem-fem crossover, you really don't want to be puncturing the, the graft. And then just always being careful in patients that have had previous surgeries. Patient that may have had a renal transplant and has a kidney down there, definitely want to be 
well, in those patients, you probably don't want to be doing this, but if you have to, you know, if it's the only option, definitely use ultrasound guidance to make sure you're avoiding those structures. All right, so I've went mining, either with a Cude catheter or a nice big long needle, and I've accessed that liquid gold. It's pouring out, it's pouring out. Now, do I need to clamp this, or do I just let it all drain out? No, you definitely don't need to clamp it. When I was in med school, that was something that was taught to me. There was a big concern about hypotension and post-obstructive diuresis, but recent studies have shown that you probably don't need to clamp it. And by clamping it, you could actually increase the risk of infection. What complications should I be looking for after decompression? So the most common thing you'll probably see is hematuria. About 2 to 16% of patients will have hematuria following decompression. However, it's rarely clinically significant. One of the big ones that we just touched on, transient hypotension. Again, this was previously thought to be a big concern. However, studies have shown that the hypotension usually normalizes without intervention, and it doesn't progress to clinically significant hypotension. The third thing is post-obstructive diuresis. This is, however, primarily with more chronic retention versus our acute urinary retention. If you do have a patient that has significant post-obstructive diuresis, what they've recommended is replacing about half of their urine volume with half normal saline. And how long are we sending patients home with this leg bag after we have the Foley in place? So a lot of this will depend on your local practice and what kind of logistics are set up to, to make this happen. Here at our institution, we generally do about one week, uh, which is felt to be reasonable. Anything more than a week, you're getting much higher increased risk for infection. Some studies do show that if you do keep it in longer than three days, you may have increased success, but that's also the time when infection rates and complications start going up, so probably somewhere in that three to seven day range. So three to seven days, less than three days, they have an increased risk of failure. Greater than seven days, they have an increased risk of infection. Seems like a pretty good interval to shoot for. Now, which of these patients are ones that we shouldn't be sending home? So any patient that has urosepsis as a complication of that, definitely not going home. Anybody with obstruction related to malignancy, not going home. Obviously, any acute myelopathy, you know, if this is a spinal cord injury patient or some sort of neurologic condition causing this, probably need a bigger workup. Anybody with renal failure, any high-volume hematuria, significant residual volumes even after decompression, and if you just have significant social issues, if it becomes apparent that this patient definitely isn't going to be able to handle this at home. What about the patients that I'm sending home? Is there anything I should be sending them home on? Do they need to be started on Tamsulosin? Flomax. Yes, the answer to that is definitely yes. And in addition to sending them home with a prescription for it, what you should probably be doing is giving them a first-time dose when you first put the catheter in. They've done a few studies, and they found that the success with that time without a catheter, so basically avoiding trial after an initial dose of Flomax had been given at the time of initial catheterization, increased success from 39 to 54%. Wait, what about the kids? Yeah, so fortunately, pediatric management is pretty similar to adult management. Really, the, the big dissimilarity from adults is that kids are going to have more congenital lesions. So you may see kids with posterior urethral valves causing this or some sort of other congenital abnormality. So really important in all those patients to make sure you're getting an ultrasound, look at their kidneys, uh, look at their bladder. So they are just little adults. I always knew it. No, regardless of what Dr. Fox says, I always knew they're just little adults. And don't forget about pee shyness, too. That's a real thing. These kids are going to school. They're afraid to pee in front of their friends. It can cause urinary retention from overdistension. Yeah, that only happens in kids, right? Only happens in kids. I've heard you'll grow out of that one day, Dr. Tregonis. I'm cheering for myself. Okay, Dr. Kovo, so we've went over a lot of awesome things here today. And thanks for taking time out of your incredibly busy day to sit down with us here at EM Guidewire. 
Now, since we went through so much, let's take a second here to run through our core concepts. What are going to be our take-home messages for the team? So the biggest thing I would say, having gone through this myself, is that urinary retention sucks. It's super painful. You know, that study showed that it's similar to renal colic. Really have an appreciation for that when you're caring for these patients. Again, the history and the physical are key. Make sure you're doing a good neurologic exam on all these patients, do a rectal exam, pelvic exam in females. In addition, make sure that we drain this urine acutely. That'll get the patient feeling better, and we have to send it for a sample, urinalysis and urine culture. Correct, because we really don't want to miss an infection in these patients, whether that's a result of the urinary retention or if that's causing it. We also want to make sure that we're starting our alpha-1 antagonist and give a prescription if they're discharged. And never forget about those kids. They can get it too. Remember, they're little adults. Thank you again for your insight, Dr. Koval. I bet we'll all be a little bit more comfortable handling our next cuvee placement now, thanks to you. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios here in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out.